And now hear the word of God from Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 30 and 40 through 42. While the Israelites were still in the land of Egypt, the Lord gave the following instructions to Moses and Aaron. From now on, this month will be the first month of the year for you. Announce to the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each family must choose a lamb or young goat for a sacrifice, one animal for each household. If a family is too small to eat a whole animal, let them share with another family in the neighborhood. Divide the animal according to the size of each family and how much they can eat. The animal you select must be a one-year-old male, either sheep or a goat, with no defects. Take special care of this chosen animal until the evening of the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel must slaughter their lamb or young goat at twilight. They are to take some of the blood and smear it on the sides and top of the door frames of the houses where they eat the animal. That same night, they must roast the meat over a fire and eat it along with bitter salad greens and bread made without yeast. Do not eat any of the meat raw or boiled in water. The whole animal, including the head, legs, and internal organs, must be roasted over a fire. Do not leave any of it until the next morning. Burn whatever is not eaten before morning. These are your instructions for eating this meal. Be fully dressed, wear your sandals, and carry your walking stick in your hand. Eat the meal with urgency, for this is the Lord's Passover. On that night, I will pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son and firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. But the blood on your doorpost will serve as a sign, marking the houses where you are staying. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. This plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt." Remember, these instructions are a permanent law that you and your descendants must observe forever. When you enter the land the Lord has promised to give you, you will continue to observe this ceremony. Then your children will ask, what does this ceremony mean? And you will reply, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, for he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt. And though he struck the Egyptians, he spared our families. When Moses had finished speaking, All the people bowed down to the ground and worshiped. So the people of Israel did just as the Lord had commanded through Moses and Aaron. And that night at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn sons in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn son of the prisoner in the dungeon. Even the firstborn of their livestock were killed. Pharaoh and all of his officials and all the people of Egypt woke up during the night and loud wailing was heard through the land of Egypt. There was not a single house where someone had not died. The people of Israel had lived in Egypt for 430 years. In fact, it was on the last day of the 430th year that all the Lord's forces left the land. On this night, the Lord kept his promise to bring his people out of the land of Egypt. So this night belongs to him, and it must be commemorated every year by all the Israelites from generation to generation. Well, good morning, church. 
It is so good to be able to worship together, even though it's not together. It's good to worship through Zoom and through YouTube. Um, I'm looking, we have a screen set up where we have our Zoom going on at the same time as a video feed, so I'm able to see your faces. So don't do anything too embarrassing, because I can see it, and it makes me laugh, and then I'll get distracted in my sermon. But... It is so good to see all of you guys. You guys are beautiful, and I'm just so glad that we get to worship together, even in this way. It does my heart good, and it will have to do until that wonderful day that we can come together for worship. I miss seeing you guys so much. Um, Our meet and greet time during our first worship service back together will probably be madness. Uh, We might have to reserve quite a bit of time for that. There's going to be a lot of hugging, a lot of tears, maybe some holy kisses. Um, It's just going to be a great time when we get back together. Just a reminder for all of you that we will have communion together following the sermon. So you can have your elements ready. It'll come right after the sermon. We'll have communion together. It's so fitting that we're celebrating communion when the sermon is on the Passover. We're continuing in our sermon series in the Pentateuch, and we're at the celebration of the Passover meal. Now, for Jews, the Passover meal is one of the central themes um, that makes up who they are. For Christians, a revised Passover meal, the Lord's Supper, is one of the central acts of our Christian worship. So this meal is very significant for us, and it radically differentiates us from other religions and philosophies. Passover and the Lord's Supper is so unique in what it teaches about our faith. If you look at what is the center of Passover, and looking at what is the center of, of, of communion, it's the death of an innocent victim. There is no other religion like that. At the very center of our biblical faith, the biblical vision, the ultimate spirituality, our spiritual reality, is the death of an innocent victim. Why? What does it mean? This passage we are in tells us about the offering up of a lamb, but in reality we see that this story, the whole story of the Bible, is a Bible-long story about the lamb. And if you've been with us since the beginning in our series, when we started in Genesis, you'll see that this story is actually, you already see elements of it. You've already started to grasp the elements of this bigger story about the story of the Lamb, the hero that saves. The story of the Bible, the narrative, and the plotline of the Bible is essentially a narrative and the story of the Lamb that saves. So today, what we want us to do is I want us to see the story of the Lamb, and then I want us to behold the Lamb. The story of the Lamb We will not get this chapter at all unless we see the full story of the Lamb. I mean, this passage is a difficult passage for most people who read this. I mean, we start off, Moses is here, and we saw last week, he was despondent. He went back to Egypt, and he was in disarray. He was uh, in depression because they didn't listen to him, and times got harder for the slaves. Then he goes to Egypt... God's with them, and he, he, the gospel was preached to Moses, and he goes back to Egypt, and he says, let my people go. So the seas of plagues occurred. I mean, we have the Nile turning into blood. We have frogs. We have gnats, flies, livestock issues, boils, hail, locusts, and then darkness. All really bad plagues, all awesome examples of God's power, but none of those plagues really take the modern reader like aback. None of those plagues are like, oh, wow. I mean, they're all bad, but... Nothing compared to this final plague. We have this final plague, this really fierce and harsh one that just doesn't sit right with us as a people, right? And not only do we have this weird, harsh plague, but we have this weird solution to the harsh plague, the death of a lamb. And this is all strange to our culture, doesn't fit our sensibilities, but in order to understand, we must get the context fully. We need to understand the bigger picture. Guys, if you look back and understand the bigger picture, as we were back in Genesis, we see... When Adam and Eve discovered they were naked, what happened was the death of an animal to cover their nakedness. 
We see Abel offering up sacrifices of his animal from his flock. And if you remember back some weeks to my sermon on Abraham and Isaac, you can recall the early stages of the story of the lamb in the Bible. Genesis 22, Abraham has a son he loves, Isaac. And in Genesis 22, he hears God speak to him and say, offer your only son as a sacrifice. And if you remember a few weeks back when I preached on this very topic, I spoke about the context that Abraham and the original audience of Exodus had. Here's this context, so different from what we're used to, so different from what we understand, but the ancient people and ancient cultures wasn't all about the individual success, individual prominence, individual prosperity. That's not what you hope for. That's not what you aspire to. Instead, what you aspire to in, in, in that time period was not about individual success, but it was more about family success. In that ancient Near Eastern culture, it was more about family success, family prosperity, family honor. And this is so radically different from our individualistic society. Secondly, in, in ancient cultures, if some member of the family failed or acted in a very shameful way, the entire family was responsible for it. It was shame on the whole family. Growing up, that was something that was kind of instilled into me, actually. Is, you know, my parents would always be like, hey, what you do represents the whole family. It wasn't just you yourself. So if one person acted shamefully, that shame belonged to everyone. Modern Americans are very individualist uh, society. I had one historian I actually read earlier said that they believe this is the most individualistic culture ever. We feel like if some member of my family acts in a shameful way, that's on them, it's not on me. I'm my own person. If my sister, if, I don't know if you're watching this, Jennifer, but if my sister acted in a weird way, that's on her. She's just the black sheep of the family. We don't acknowledge her at all. Some of you guys know who that is in your family. We don't feel it's responsibility. I'm not responsible for them. I'm my own person. They're their own person. But in ancient cultures, people didn't think of themselves as individuals, but as families. And at a time in which the firstborn got the whole estate, the firstborn was representative of that family. And God made it clear in Exodus 22, Numbers 3 and 8, that through the Mosaic law, the life of every firstborn is his. Every year, they had to redeem their firstborn. They had to give their shekels. There was a redemption price on the price of the firstborn of the family. The lives of the firstborn was forfeit until they're redeemed. That's what the law of Moses said. There is a debt of sin. There is a debt that is owed God on every family on the face of the earth. Your firstborns are liable for what they do as a family, as your family's sin. And this is so weird to us as individualistic American people. But what that means, it's very important to understand, is what, what God said to Abraham. And when God said to Abraham, he said, offer your firstborn son as an offering to me. Abraham, um, if Abraham would have heard the words, go to your tent and kill Sarah, Abraham would have been like, no, I'm having a hallucination Abraham would have said, uh, no, that's, that's, that's my weird, there's a weird voice speaking, that's a demon, because God would not call me to do something so absolutely at odds with his righteousness and with his word. But when God said, Abraham, offer your firstborn, Abraham did not say, what? No, you're crazy. Abraham realized God was calling in a debt that was owed to the family. That God was doing something that he had a right to do, that Isaac was about to die for Abraham's sins. And you, you remember those, right? We talked about them. He offered his wife up. He not, didn't trust God. He laid with Hagar, then cast her out, and so much more. Abraham struggled, of course, but he didn't say, how can you be so unjust? What Abraham was saying when this happened was, how can you be both just, which you have a right to be, because you're a God, or you're a just God, and we need a just God. Otherwise, there is no right and wrong in the world. But can you also still be a God of grace? Because you promised great things to happen to me, Abraham, through my son in the world. So God, how can you be both just 
and a justifier of those who believe? How can he be both just and gracious? And as he walked up the mountain, this is the kind of the peak account of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22. We'll put it on the screen. And this is what he said. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. What Abraham is saying here is, I hope with everything I have, God, that, that you will not have to, uh, I hope with all my being that everything to his son, he's saying, I hope that you will not have to die for my sins. I hope that there's a way that God will provide. And at the last minute, God says, Abraham, don't do it. Yet the lamb that was needed for the sins never came. The chapter ends and it's all good, but there's, no, there's still unanswered debt there. There's a ram who gets caught in the thicket, and the ram is sacrificed, but it's more as a thank offering because of the fact of the marriage is a debt. And God has a right for payment, but it doesn't get made. So where is the lamb? Continuing on in the story of the lamb, Moses. And again, God claims the life of the first, but here we are in this passage, claiming the life of the firstborn. And the only hope here is a lamb. Now, in this Passover chapter, the story, we see two extremely kind of interesting principles played out. And the two principles are this. One, the principle of spiritual equality, and other, the principle of spiritual substitution. The principle of spiritual equality, in Exodus 12, 22, it says, God says to the Israelites, none of you shall go out of the door of this house until the morning. Now, this is so interesting. You're like, what does that mean? If you're reading this chapter, you can go right by, but it's an astounding thing. What he's saying is, guys, to the Israelites even, he says, you guys can't leave because your children are forfeit too. Not just the Egyptian children, but your children. Not just the Egyptians who are the oppressors, even though you're the oppressed, even though you worship God, even though they worship idols, yet you yourselves, you are still judged. You're still judged because by, by any measure, by the Ten Commandments or by the Golden Rule or by whatever cultural standards, you're still lost. You yourself are not better than any of the Egyptians. This is principle of spiritual equality. We so often try to claim spiritual superiority, maybe because you think you're good, maybe because you think you're morally ethical, maybe because you try to do the right thing. But with this, maybe if you go out on your own and this this idea that you have is that, you know, based on my own ethnicity, my race, my religion, my beliefs, my doctrine, my own abilities to be good or hold true to some standards, you think I'm not as bad as those. That's what the Israelites were. They, They thought they were not as bad as the Egyptians. But this principle is that we are all sinners. We're all dead in our transgressions and we all are not able to live up to the holiness standard that is God's. Because if God let loose of his holiness just a little bit, then we wouldn't know what true beauty and true holiness and true righteousness is. But secondly, there's a second principle at work here. It's the principle of spiritual substitution. What is the hope that the Israelites had? In every single house in Egypt that night, there was either a dead son or a dead lamb. It was one or the other. In other words, the lamb got what the son deserved. The lamb was his substitute. The lamb paid the debt so the firstborn son did not have to pay the debt for the family. And every firstborn son in every Hebrew home could look at the table and look at the lamb and say, the only reason I'm not dead is because that animal died in my place. The simple fact is that we know there's a debt. Emotionally, psychologically, socially, we know that there's a debt. We carry guilt on our hearts. 
We've not been living as we should. We know that death can be transferred. We believe in this idea of, of this family and we believe that the principle of substitution is not credible to us because we're very American individualistic, but this, it exists and, and we, in the individualistic society, even still, we can feel the debt weight on us. When I lived in Orlando, um, I became friends with a missionary who worked for Wycliffe Bible Translators. And he, he was this missionary that was there for a while, and he was, he would, I always bring my youth group to see him because he was just so cool. And he would share this amazing story. That's where Wycliffe was centered in Orlando at the time. And he shared, I don't know if they're still there, but he might be. He shared this incredible story with me about his time translating the Bible. He was in this remote region of Papua New Guinea and tried to bring the Bible to a place that didn't have a written language. He spent 25 years there, so I think maybe a little longer. And one day he said while he was there, he was walking with his guy. This is kind of early on. He was walking with a guy there, and he, they took a break, and they sat down, and they started eating, and he started eating some chocolate that he had from back home. And he gave some to his guide, and the guy tasted it, and he they said his reaction was priceless. He said he tasted it, and he used this word. I can't remember the word. He told me the word. It was so much, this is a better story with the word, but I don't remember what the word was in their language, but it translated to, it is so good. It's, it's too good for life. It's too good for life. You know, it's like, could you imagine for those of you who really love chocolate, eating chocolate for the first time, you're like, it's too good for life. Years later, my friend, the missionary, was struggling with translating the term and a concept for ransom for many. He was really struggling. How do you translate that idea of ransom for many? Really wrestling with it, some of the locals that he was with shared a common custom or something that occurred in their society. They said, suppose a man was cutting down a tree. And it fell and hit another person and it killed that person. It was an accident, but it still killed that person. Well, what that person would do is then he would go to his home and he would lock himself in. And then the house would be surrounded by the relatives of the person that was killed. And they would sit there and they would demand justice. They would surround this house and they would demand justice. And the family members of the locked up man would then bring goods. They'd bring products, produce, foods, uh, jewelry, whatever. They'd bring goods and they'd lay them at the feet of the people surrounding the home. And they would do this until they, the relatives would cry out a word. I don't, once again, I don't remember what the word was. But the, this word meant, it is enough. It's enough. The debt's paid. And when the missionary, upon hearing this story, said, yes, yes, yes. That's what Jesus did. He gave himself to the debt was paid. He took ownership of the family as a member. Of this is, even though it wasn't his sin, even though this guy did it, he paid the price until the debt was paid. And when the locals heard this, they started rejoicing. And they shouted out the word that the guide used so long ago about what the word for chocolate. They said it was too good for life. And they praised and they celebrated. That actually story ends. He showed us a video um, of when they actually brought the written Bible to the village for the first time. There was celebration in the streets. Um, it took 20-something years to, for it to happen, but it was an incredible video of watching this happening there. The people in that village understood what we in our culture so struggle with, that there is a debt to our sin, but there is a, substitutionary, there is a substitution as well. The Passover allowed the Israelite people to see the lamb and know that it was in their stead it was killed, but it wasn't enough. It allowed a Passover, but it was, they needed was a full redemption. The lamb that was slain on Passover was pointing to the fuller sacrifice. Jesus Christ, on the night that he was betrayed, celebrates the Passover meal. They all get together for this Passover, and when Jesus Christ stands up, there are two big shocking things that he does. 
First, when Jesus stands up, he begins to speak, and everybody's like, okay, that's, that makes sense. Jesus is our leader. So he's standing in the place of the Father. And at the Passover meal, there's a, a presider, a kind of like the, 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 the dad who kind of leads this meal together. At the Passover meal, there is this job. That's his job is to go through Exodus 12 and 13 and kind of tells the people what it is that they're doing, why they're celebrating this meal. So Jesus gets up and we, they expect him to say, this is the bread of our affliction. Our ancestors suffered in the wilderness so we could be free. But that's not what Jesus says. He stands up and says, this is my body. This bread is my body. And what he's saying is this bread is the bread of my affliction. I'm going to suffer to give you ultimate freedom. Freedom not just from physical and political and economic bondage, but from sin and death itself. That's the first shock. He gets up and says, this is my body. And in place of the presider of the Passover, he's saying, it's my suffering. That's the ultimate liberation for you. But then here's the second thing, and this is, this, this is what this Tim Keller says, this, and I love this. He said, when he stood up, the disciples looked down, and there's three main things you have at a Passover meal. You have the unleavened bread, which Gina told me that she made unleavened bread today. I was a little jealous that she has unleavened bread freshly baked today. I was like, oh, good job, Gina. There's Jesus breaking the bread. Then you have cups of wine, and there's Jesus pouring out the cup. But then there's a lamb. So it's supposed to be bread, it's supposed to be wine, and a lamb at the Passover feast. But here's Jesus at this Passover feast, and there's bread, and there's wine, but there's no lamb. What kind of Passover meal is this? It's kind of like me. I feel like if I have a meal without meat, I'm like, what kind? it's not a meal. It's a snack. What kind of Passover meal is this, says the disciples? There's no lamb on the table. Do you know why? Because the lamb was at the table. The lamb was deliberately removed from the Passover meal because Jesus Christ is saying tonight, I am the lamb. My death is a central event to which all of history and God's relation to the world has been moving to. Tonight is ultimate salvation that Moses understood partly. Tonight, I'm fully removing you from the bondage of slavery, sin, and death. See, the story of the lamb is this incredible story that started, as you see, the the death of the animal to cover Adam and Eve, Abel offering, Abraham needing the lamb, Moses, and it continued on, and Jesus said, I am the lamb. And this is the reason why John the Baptist looked at Jesus, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, cried out, behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. What, Jesus, what John the Baptist is saying, is proclaiming, to telling all his people, John knew it, but he wants all his people to know it too. He's saying, I get it, guys. The reason that our firstborns are not dead, the reason Passover happened is because, not because of a, of a cute little furry animal that's a lamb, but because Jesus is the lamb. And here he is. He's the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. That's the answer to Abraham. God is saying, Abraham, I'm going to go up that mountain with you. I'm going to take my son, and I'm going to lay the wood and fire upon him, and he is going to die so your son dies doesn't. Do you see that? He dies so that we don't. Behold the perfect lamb. John 19.33 pointed out that Jesus' bones were not broken. Why? Because he was a lamb without spot and blemish. Matthew 27 pointed out that Jesus died at twilight. Why? Because a lamb was to be slain at twilight. Behold the lamb of God. I love that word, behold. I mean, it's, it's kind of one of those words that we don't use in today's language too often. You guys would think it weird if I was like, behold, I am here. That would just be kind of weird, you know? Or behold, the beauty of that tree. 
That's just, it's not what we say, but behold, I love that word. It's, I mean, maybe some of you use that word. I don't know. If you guys do, that's cool. That's your thing. But what behold really means is to properly see, to think, to know. That's actually the Greek translation is to properly see, to think, to know, to take in, to grasp people today. Behold the beautiful story of the Lamb. Behold Jesus Christ. Do you see this epic tale that was woven from Abraham, or from uh, Adam and Eve to Abraham to Moses, the lamb is a substitute. Jesus said, it's me, he's the only son. If the, of course, there's one more chapter that we're not mentioned yet, is that if you go to the book of Revelation where the lamb is on the throne, there's a huge, beautiful, woven tale of the story of the lamb. Do you see it? And here's why it's even better than we could possibly imagine and that people could even understand that the lamb that was slain, he did not stay slain. Our lamb lives. He came back to life and for centuries, millions, for centuries, millions of lambs were slaughtered, but no more. Sin has no wages which Christ has not paid in full, which is why he can say on the cross, it is finished. You don't need another lamb. You don't need another Passover. The justice of God did not pass over Christ so that it might pass over us. Next week, as a church, we are celebrating Easter. And the empty tomb is there to tell us that unlike all the gods of Egypt and all the gods of our age, this time, the lamb that was slain, it works. Death has been defeated. The grave has been conquered. Our sins are passed over us. Guys, do you behold the lamb? People, do not let your pride, your cultural understanding, and your individualism keep you from accepting the fact that there's a debt that must be paid. If there was no, if it not, there would be no concept of true justice, no right and wrong. Behold the Lamb. People, be reminded in this time that you are a part of a greater story of the Lamb. Revelation 13.8 says, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the lamb who was slain. This verse basically says the lamb was slain from the beginning. The whole story was pointing to the lamb that was being slain. And we need to be reminded of the lamb's story today. It is our story. I love this. Verse 13 in our passage today says, the blood shall be a sign for you. It was a public sign, an assurance, a visceral reminder to them. It was a sign and seal testifying to them that life will come through death. We will live tonight because something, someone has died in our place. We will be safe because of the blood. And it was a sign for them. Do you get what that's saying? I mean, I want you guys to get this. Don't miss this. That God didn't have bad aim. God wasn't sure, like, oh, if I come and, and do this plague, you know, my people, I, I got to see the red because that, that way I won't, I won't get them. No, it was a sign for them to remind them that the blood covered them. They needed to be reminded that they were safe, that the blood covers them. My people, do you need to be reminded that Jesus Christ, once for all, took the curse of sin and death away? That we no longer fear death because we are part of the story of the Lamb. Do you need to be reminded of your identity Do you need to be reminded that you are beloved? Do you need to be reminded today of the gospel hope that is yours through the work of the Lamb? That you're part of a bigger story and what even happens now, today, even though it feels so all-consuming, it's just a blip on this beautiful story that is woven together.
and that our future is secure because we know how the book ends, we know how the story ends. The lamb is seated on the throne and all that is wrong is made right. All that is broken in creation is made beautiful again. Where we have no more tears. Our hope is not just success in the world now. Our hope is not just being good now. Our hope is found in the story of the lamb. And our future hope is a reality for us who believe. And that's what we're doing, guys. That what we need reminders of this. We need reminders that we're a part of the story of the Lamb. And that's what we do today when we take communion. It's our sign. It's our seal. It's our reminder that Jesus is the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. When we come to communion together, we are beholding him. We're gazing upon him. We're knowing him. We're contemplating, meditating on the story of the Lamb, the one who is worthy and who purchased the people for God. May you be reminded today, Waypoint Church, may you be reminded today, people who are listening, that the story of the Lamb is our story. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that the Passover gave us a glimpse of the story of the Lamb. God, we thank you that there is a substitution for our sin. God, that, that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, that we, through him, can have righteousness and relationship with you. God, we thank you for your love over us and allowing us to be part of a greater, bigger story. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're celebrating communion together today as a church family. And I know that this is different and it's a little bit strange, but the Holy Spirit binds us across barriers and will even use the internet to join us together. I love this Passover meal. It was originally meant to be done together as a household, as, as a family together. It says in each house has a lamb and they all came together as a household. But together today, we do it as a household of faith through the work of Jesus Christ. So we as a household, we as a church, we as a body, we as a family come and partake of this family meal together. We are one in Christ, a family knit together by his blood and by his spirit. And can I tell you something, guys? More powerful than the blood in our veins, more powerful than family blood ties is the blood of Jesus Christ. So on that night, the disciples had, during their Passover dinner, Jesus took the bread, he gave thanks and he broke the bread and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. My people, wherever you're at, if you will take the body, or if you take the bread, the bread that was broken for you, the bread of affliction that Christ endured for you, will you take and partake of the body in remembrance of him? In the same way, he took the cup, saying, this, is a cu- this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Knowing that his blood was the blood that allowed us to be passed over, his substitutionary death is what allows us to be passed over, but also that the story of the lamb is one of a pursuit of a saving relationship of a hero God.
Let's partake in remembrance of him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, as we partake in Holy Communion, God, as we behold the lamb that was slain, we see at our Passover meal, we see in this meal, God, that Jesus, you are the lamb that is missing in our elements, and your death has been once and for all. It has been accomplished, it is done, it is finished, there's no need for the lamb anymore. So we thank you, God. God, as we, as we remember the work of Christ, God, may we behold him. God, may we gaze upon his beauty. And in this time of uncertainty, in this unprecedented time that we are in right now, please remind us of your sovereignty, of your good and perfect plan, and our future hope and reality. That no matter what happens in this world, no matter what happens to our bodies, God, you are going to make something new. God, as we celebrate next week that the tomb is empty, that we live in resurrection reality, resurrection power because of the work that happened at the cross. Jesus, you are our Passover lamb. We thank you. We love you. God, we praise you. Let us worship.